Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. My name is Naj Srinivas, Corporate Communications Group Vice President here at the firm. And today we've got a little bit of a different episode for all of you. Today we actually wanted to share with you an excerpt from a recent webinar we did for our clients. This webinar actually focuses on the Equifax breach and steps you can take to protect yourself. Likewise, what the potential market and economic impact of the breach might be. Hope you enjoy and I'll rejoin you at the end of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this special webinar, After Equifax, How to Protect Yourself from Fraud. My name is Naj Srinivas and I'm a Vice President here at Fisher Investments. I'm joined today by research analyst Ben Thistlewhite. Hi Naj. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So what can you do? So let me just go through this in, in brief detail before I actually dive into the information. Well, you first want to check with Equifax to see if you've been compromised and go to their website. We'll talk about how you do that in a moment. You want to review your credit reports and your accounts. Go through your credit report in detail. Then also look at your credit card accounts, look at your bank accounts, and look for fraudulent or unauthorized activity. You should consider freezing your credit, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You also maybe want to investigate or consider finding an ID theft protection service. And last but not least, we'll give you some tips and tricks on what to do if your identity has been stolen, some advice for what you can do there. So let's start with Equifax and what you need to do. Equifax has set up a special website to understand if if your information actually has been breached or or lost. And that website is equifaxsecurity2017.com. This is also the site that you need to use in order to sign up for their ID protection service, which I'll talk about in a moment. It's important, especially right now in the aftermath of this breach, that you understand that There are going to be a lot of other false websites out there in the world. Hackers are actually going to use this as an opportunity to prey on people who are worried about this hack, and they're going to set up false websites, or they're going to set up services that potentially are going to help protect you. Be aware of those, and really research and look into all of these sites. EquifaxSecurity2017.com is the only website that you should go to to check if you are compromised or not. There was actually a news story a couple days ago of a a cybersecurity expert who set up a website called SecurityEquifax2017.com just to prove a point. He didn't steal anyone's information, but he said, why is this the website? So just be aware of any other parties out there in the world or services that are potentially offering some safety net or some investigation in your credit, this is the only website you really want to go to. The next thing you want to do, even if you were compromised or even if you weren't compromised in the Equifax breach, is spend some time reviewing your credit reports and accounts. The federal government has authorized one site. It's annualcreditreport.com. This is a site that you can go to to get a credit report from each of the three major bureaus for free every 12 months. The federal government mandated that the major three credit bureaus actually set up a single source or site that you can go to to get your credit report from each of them. So this is where I'd recommend that you go look at your credit report if you haven't in the last 12 months, study it in detail, make sure there aren't any fraud, unauthorized activity, any unfamiliar accounts that maybe you didn't actually open up. Make sure all of the information there is accurate, not only for those types of accounts, but also your payment history to make sure accounts were closed that you believe are closed or not. 
And if you find something that's amiss, you want to report it to that credit bureau right away and open up a dispute, and I'll walk you through the steps that you can take there. If you've already actually received a free credit report in the last 12 months, you can, you'll actually need to contact each of the individual bureaus to get a copy of credit reports from them. They usually charge a small nominal fee, anywhere from $10 to $20 to get a copy of your credit report from them. But that's definitely something, and it's the, one of the very first steps that you need to take uh, to ensure that your credit and information is secure. The next thing you want to do is consider freezing your credit. Freezing your credit is really the gold standard here. It is going to be the way that you best protect yourself from identity theft, but it comes with some trade-offs and pros and cons. And there's really two ways that you can approach freezing your credit. The two ways are this, fraud alert statements. So say you take a look at your credit report and you see something that's amiss, but you want to investigate it further. Well, you want to contact any one of the credit bureaus and say, there's something wrong with my credit report. I see something on here that isn't correct. I'd like to put a fraud alert statement on it. What the credit bureau will do then was they'll freeze your credit, usually temporarily for around 90 days. And importantly, you only need to report a fraud alert to one of the bureaus. That bureau will actually inform the other two bureaus that this statement has been put on there. And then anytime anyone else out there in the world tries to actually access your information or tries to open up an account in your name, the credit bureaus will actually contact you first and say, someone tried to open up an account. Was this you or not? We've frozen your credit right now, so you can't do it. There, are, there is no cost to actually putting a fraud alert statement onto your credit reports. Unfortunately, though, it's temporary in nature. Now, freezing your credit is really the Fort Knox. A freeze of your credit is permanent. Unfortunately, though, what you need to do is actually freeze your credit at each of the individual agencies. So you need to call Equifax, call Experian, call TransUnion, and place a freeze. And when I say freeze your credit, what I mean is that you're actually freezing the ability for anyone to open up new accounts. If you already have a credit card in your name, or you already have a mortgage or a car loan, all of those will continue operating just fine, but this prevents anyone from opening up a new account in your name without your previous information. Now, it's usually about $5 to freeze your credit or unfreeze your credit. And that last part is important because when you freeze your credit, it actually may impact your ability to do different things. For example, if you want to sign up for a new cell phone plan or you want to sign up for new cable TV service, they're actually going to run your credit first. And if you have a freeze on your credit, you won't be able to do those things. So what you'll need to do is call the bureau first that they use to check your credit, remove the freeze, and then have them run your credit and then reapply the freeze. And so that may actually slow down your ability to do these things. But freezing your credit, again, is really the Fort Knox here. The reason is pretty simple. Well, a fraud alert is nice and is a temporary measure to make, give you some short-term safety. When it comes to your social security number, your date of birth, and your name, those things don't expire. And so while hackers may have actually taken your information here in the short term, you might not see activity or fraudulent activity right away. Hackers are actually pretty smart about this. They know in the aftermath of these breaches that people are going to be going and freezing their credit. They may wait for a year, two years, three years before actually selling your information on the black market or in the dark web 
And by that point, many people may have thought, well, nothing fraudulent has happened to me. I haven't seen any new accounts open. Maybe my information wasn't compromised. But a couple of years down the road, you may actually find that your information has been sold and someone actually tries to do this, just when you think everything is safe and the coast is clear. And so that's why freezing your credit, which is an inconvenience to you, is really the gold standard here. It's the Fort Knox. Now, the other thing I point out here, it's interesting that putting a fraud alert statement on your account has no cost to you, but freezing your credit actually costs you. The reason for this is pretty simple. Remember I said earlier that the credit bureaus, they're in the business of selling your information to lenders out there in the world. Lenders out there in the world are really the credit bureau's customers. You are not their customer. And it actually behooves them to make sure that you can, or people can run your credit easily. By putting a freeze on your credit, that actually impacts them and their profitability and the ability for lenders to do business with them. So really, although this is a marginal cost for you and a minor inconvenience, it's important that you do that because the credit bureaus really aren't on your side in, this, in that regard. The next thing you maybe want to do is consider finding an ID theft protection service. Now, the major three credit bureaus offer ID theft protection service, and as part of this breach and, and their, their response to the breach, Equifax is actually offering their trusted ID premier service for free for a year. What that service does is it provides you credit monitoring, ID theft protection, about a million dollars in coverage, insurance coverage, if your ID actually does get stolen, and then access to experts, both legal and ID theft recovery, if you do, in fact, need it. After the first year, it's about $19.95 a month. Mind you, though, I mentioned just a moment ago that your personal private information, your social security number, your date of birth, those things don't expire. So while it's a nice gesture that Equifax has given you this free year, thereafter, they're going to be making money on you. And so it behooves you to continue to still look into one of these things. And I wouldn't be so surprised if after the public backlash against Equifax and maybe some legislative scrutiny, they don't extend those free years even a little bit farther. Experian and TransUnion offer theirs as well. And there are a number of different identification theft protection services out there. A popular one is LifeLock. There's AAA. Even big box retailers like Costco and Walmart offer their own. We did a lot of research in all of these, and unfortunately, I can't recommend any one of them to you because there are literally hundreds out there in the world, and they all offer different things. There are some that are really, really only credit monitoring services. There are some that specialize in ID theft recovery. There are even some that specialize in protecting your social media. And while that might not be as relevant or important to all of you, if you're, say, President Donald Trump or Kim Kardashian, that might be pretty important to you and might be something you want to look into. So really it behooves you to look into each of these ID theft protection services Figure out what's important to you, what you really want to protect, and also what you are willing to pay for that protection over time. You have to do that research in order to pick one of these. Now, what can you do if your identification, has, your identification information actually has been stolen? Well, there's a couple of things that you can do. As I mentioned earlier, the first thing you want to do is file a fraud alert statement with any of the bureaus to alert them that your ID has been stolen. 
You also want to consider freezing your credit. Again, the fraud alert statement is a temporary measure, but you want to freeze your credit. And when you freeze your credit, you want to freeze it at each of the three major bureaus. And you've got to do that independently. There's no one single site that you can do that. You also want to investigate an ID theft recovery service if you are worried about it. These are specialists that will help guide you through the process. They'll do some of the legwork for you. You want to report your ID theft to the FTC. They've set up a special website for it. It's www.identitytheft.gov. And they'll take you step by step through all of the different things you need to do if you lost, say, your social security number or you lost your wallet or your driver's license or credit cards. And they'll guide you from that regard. Last but not least, you want to contact local law enforcement, file a police report in your state attorney general to let them know that this has happened. These last two steps are particularly important because when you go to file a fraud alert statement and you go to freeze your credit with the major bureaus, they're actually going to ask for proof that you filed a complaint with the FTC or that you filed a police report with local law enforcement. And that's when they'll actually waive any of the fees that are tied to freezing your credit because they know this is a serious matter. You've reported to local law enforcement. So these are just some of the things that you can do if your identity has been stolen. Now, what are some other helpful tips to help protect yourself? We talked about Equifax and information security, but when it comes to fraud, it actually extends to much, much more and many more things. For example, hacking doesn't just want to steal your social security number and date of birth and your name and address. Many hackers want to get your online account information. For example, what's your username that you use at your banking institution and what's your password? Right, so what are some tips that you can help protect yourself there? Well, first and foremost, you always want to update your passwords regularly. If you haven't changed your password in a little while, make sure that you do that at all of your, especially sensitive financial institutions, sensitive places where if that password got lost, they could actually get into a number of different other sites. Here's just a, a, a list of commonly used passwords I found online. You'll find it a little ironic that password is actually one of the most popular passwords out there in the world. Hopefully you don't see your own password on this list. If you do, I recommend that you change it. And when it comes to actually changing your password, you know, the old logic was that a phrase or a, a, a word and then a number of uh, some numbers was the best password you can use. New research is actually showing that passphrases and then something unique to the website that you're operating on is actually much, much more secure. And I'll explain why and what a passphrase is. So for example, I might use a passphrase, I love pizza. Please don't use that passphrase yourself. But I might use that passphrase at my banking institution and I might use, I love pizza, the plus sign, and then bank. By contrast, I might go to my Netflix account and I might use I love pizza plus movies. Now the objective there is to have a passphrase that's easily memorable for me. I love pizza, it's a true fact. But then also something that's unique to each of the institutions that I'm dealing with there. Now the reason why it's actually much more effective for all of you and much safer is that say one of your institutions actually gets hacked and you lose the password, or they lose the password and your username. Well, hackers can't then take your Netflix password, for example, and go to your bank account and log in and start using or making transactions or setting up things without your knowledge. So it's an additional layer of protection for you to ensure that while your password or your passphrase is memorable, you have something that's unique to each of the sites that you go to to protect yourself from that, in, that 
potential incident where someone loses your passphrase and it's out there in the world with hackers. The second thing you want to do wherever you can is set up what's called a multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is really just a simple word for saying that people are going to require two forms of identification from you in order to make any major changes to your accounts. For example, one way to authenticate you is to set up a password and a username. But then if you want to actually do something else, say with your banking institution, they're actually going to send a code, a number code, to your cell phone. And you're going to need that code in order to finish whatever transaction you were doing. Or maybe they might send it to your email. It's just an additional way that they can authenticate that you are really you. Another helpful thing that you may want to consider doing, especially with your financial institutions, specifically your banks or credit cards, is set up account alerts. You can do this, and basically what it does is it'll send you an email or a text message anytime, say, $100 is withdrawn from your account. You may actually want to even consider lower amounts than that, say $75, because oftentimes what hackers will do when they get access to your credit card information or your debit card information is they'll actually just take out $50 at a time or $75 at a time just to ensure that it works, but they'll run up a lot of charges in a row before they know that fraud protection will actually kick in for those debit cards or credit cards. So set up those accounts and those alerts, and immediately when you see something that you don't recognize come out, call your credit card company, call your banking institution, and tell them, hey, something happened, there was an unauthorized charge here, I didn't make it. And I'll talk to you in a moment about why it's important to be very vigilant about that and call your banking institutions right away when you do see unauthorized activity. A third thing you want to do is keep your operating system, your antivirus, and your firewall software all up to date. And that's not only on your PCs, but that's also on your phones and your tablets, those sort of things. Many times when software providers, especially operating system software providers, are releasing new versions or patches or updates, what they're also trying to do is actually close known vulnerabilities. So it's important that you update your software whenever you can. Antivirus software especially, you want to make sure you keep that updated. One caveat here that's important to keep in mind, and I'll actually show you an example of this. When you get a message from your antivirus software that says your definitions need to be updated or your software needs to be updated, make sure it's your actual antivirus software that you have installed on your computer and not some bogus website with a pop-up or something else. And I'll show you some examples here in a moment. Checks. Avoid using checks wherever possible. Checks are probably the least secure form of payment. Now, I know that in the world there are just certain things that you have to write a check for. For example, you might have to write a check for your mortgage payment or your rent payment. And that's, that's fine if you know it's going to a trusted source. But checks are the least secure method of payment simply because it has a ton of your sensitive information right there on the check and checks really don't have a whole lot of safeguards against fraud with them. Think about checks for a moment. They've got your name and your address in the upper right-hand corner. On the bottom and the left-hand corner, they've got your bank routing number, which finds your specific account, and then they've got your account number right next to it. But then, too, remember, it's got a perfect copy of your signature on the signature line. And many times when you give a check to a, a vendor or a someone out there in the world, they'll ask for a copy of your driver's license. So they can write your driver's license number on the check too. That basically puts all of your information out there in the world for anyone to see, anyone along the line that handles that check. So 
Beware of using checks wherever possible. Minimize the use of them. Use credit cards. Now, here's the simple reason why you want to avoid using physical checks and even debit cards to a certain degree and default to using credit cards. Not because you get points or anything else like that, because credit cards by federal law really firewall you against any unauthorized charges or fraud. If you see that there's an unauthorized charge on your credit card, all you've got to do is report that to your credit card company. Your credit card company will take that off your account and issue you a new card right away, often overnighting you a new card to ensure that you can keep using that. By contrast, if you actually do have check fraud that happen, that happens, it's a pretty long, painful process in order to ensure that that money doesn't come out of your account. Even with debit cards, you could actually be held liable for a lot of any unauthorized activities or fraud that happens on it, especially if you don't report it right away. If you see unauthorized activity on a debit card, for example, within two days, you might be liable for maybe $50 of that activity. If you see that unauthorized activity after 60 days, many banks will cap your maximum losses at $500. But if something goes undetected by you for more than 60 days, you could be responsible for the entire amount of that unauthorized purchase. Your banks won't make you whole based on that if you, if you wait too long to report that unauthorized activity. Now, going back to my second point, that's why it's especially important to set up account alerts on your banks and financial institutions and credit cards so that you know when a transaction actually happens. And if you do see something that's unauthorized, that you can take action on it very quickly, especially if it's regard, with regards to a debit card or a bank account. So I want to spend a little bit of time, we've gone through Equifax and what you can do there, some other helpful tips, but I'd be remiss not to help educate you about some characteristics and signs of scams and frauds to really help prepare you, give you some tools that you can use anytime you get an email or a phone call from someone that you can put this filter on and understand, is this a possible scam? Is this a possible fraud? And this is actually taken directly from some of the training that our information security group here at the firm takes all of our employees through on a regular basis. So here are the three things that you wanna really look for with any type of potential scam or fraud that worries you. Well, first of all, it's unexpected. A company contacts you for personal information they should already have. For example, a company might contact you and say, we need you to enter your username or your password to reauthenticate who you are here. Please click on this link, right? Most companies who have your information won't contact you to ask you for that information again. It's generally unsolicited. So you'll receive an email sent to various but unrelated email addresses. For example, you might get an email that asks you to click on a link and the email is sent to a whole bunch of people that might be in your golf group, but then a whole bunch of other people that you really don't know who they are. Well, it's very likely that your golf group had an email list out there on the web somewhere and a hacker found that list and aggregated it with a whole bunch of other people he wanted to target, he or she wanted to target, and sent that to all of you. So beware those big group chain emails. We don't really recognize everyone on there. And then last but not least, generally those emails are asking you to do something, right? Click on this link, download this program, go to this website. So those are things that you want to be aware of, especially when they're sending you to seemingly reasonable websites, websites that maybe you've dealt with in the past, or maybe even government institutions. 
beware of those links to things. So with that, I'm actually going to turn the floor over to Ben, who's going to take you through the market and economic impact of the Equifax breach. Ben? All right. Well, thank you, Naj. And um, I think Naj did a great job really going through a lot of the details of the breach um, and some good first steps that you may have already taken or hopefully will take after this webinar. Now, I'm a research analyst, so the first steps I took when I learned about this was try to understand what the impact was for Equifax, for the industry, the sector, and the broader market. And you know, the good news is that we don't think this is going to have a large-scale impact on markets, as, as Naj mentioned earlier. Now, the bad news is mostly limited to Equifax for the present time. And when you look at the way these disclosures happened and the missteps in the kind of discovery process and alternating between what they were going to do for victims of the fraud, of the breach or not, it's created a lot of uncertainty. And it's always important to remember that markets just really hate uncertainty. So for the foreseeable future, we think Equifax is going to face a bit of an uphill battle. Um, that's never minding all the settlements, the litigation, the management changes and the like. The scant good piece of news for Equifax is that uncertainty should fall from these le very low levels. So that's the positive for Equifax. And when you think about that on a kind of immediate market impact, it really shouldn't impact the market very much at all. Now, Equifax is a $12 billion company, and $12 billion any way you measure it is a lot of money. But compared to you know, a large U.S. corporation like Apple, which is a $792 billion company, it's a drop in the bucket. And when you compare it to U.S. stocks, uh, $21.5 trillion market cap, which is just the measure of value of those stocks, it's a tiny slice of that pie. It's an even smaller slice of global developed market equities coming in at $38 trillion. So Equifax could theoretically uh, disappear overnight, and global equity markets would just be a tiny blip on the radar. You probably wouldn't see much impact there. Now, when we've been studying this breach, uh, one thing that we've come across again and again is a lot of concern in the media uh, based on the idea that you know the U.S. consumer could go into retreat, everyone could freeze their credit, that would limit credit availability, shrink loan growth. You could see uh, you know, consumer, consumer spending fall, retail sales fall, home, housing sales, auto sales, all of those could roll over. And, and that is a pretty scary scenario because consumption is a large part of our economy. It's about 70% of our economy in the U.S. But we think that's incredibly likely for a, unlikely for a variety of reasons. Now, the first one is when you look at consumption and you look at consumer spending, it's a lot less volatile than most people think. And I'm showing you a chart here of consumer spending. It goes back to about the 1960s, and this is personal consumption. And then with the gray areas are recessions, those times when we all have to kind of tighten our belt and, and you know, maybe spending falls a little bit. But what you can see is it really doesn't move around all that much. And, and I really want to highlight the most recent recession, uh, the global financial crisis, which is the bar to the far right of your screen. And you can see consumption did fall down a little bit there. But even during that downturn, which was second only to the Great Depression, consumption only fell by four percentage points, which I think most people really find surprising, given some of the big economic dislocations you saw in labor markets or other markets. So that's one that we think is pretty important to understand, that consumer spending just doesn't move around that much. Part of the reason is structural. Uh, we're spending on a lot of things that we don't have a ton of wiggle room on, things like housing, insurance, healthcare, and even education. 
Now, the other thing to think about is, is right now we're not in one of those recessions or those gray periods. We're in a period where you've got consumer confidence at high levels, you've got tight labor markets, stock markets are at or near all-time highs. Households have the highest net worth on record reporting and the lowest debt levels that you've seen in this expansion. And it's also one where you know, people are feeling pretty good because you've got tight labor markets too. So we don't think the consumer is meaningfully going to shift behavior because of some of the imposition of these credit frauds, credit freezes. Now, the other thing to think about when you think about these freezes, as Naj explained, this isn't a permanent thing. It doesn't take you out of the game for all time. It's something that you can control. You can turn that spigot on and off. So if you're looking to buy a house or a car or excited about the new iPhone or, or maybe all three of those, you're just going to unfreeze your credit to do those transactions. It's not something that you're going to just put off permanently because of that credit freeze. It might add a, a couple hours or a day to the process, but it's unlikely to really meaningfully move the needle there. Now, the other thing that's really important to point out, too, at this moment, we're in a, a global coordinated expansion. This is a global bull market. And in this eight-plus year bull market, you've had periods where the U.S. has led. And you know, maybe Europe was having some issues many years, several years ago, or, or China was having a hiccup a couple years ago. But what you're seeing across major economies, particularly since about the middle of 2016, is a nice, almost synchronized expansion. And you see that in a lot of the macroeconomic data, GDP, purchasing managers, indexes, global trade. And we don't think that's likely to change because of that. So even if the U.S. were to hit a little bit of a soft patch, maybe the consumer said, we're just going to take a pause and let the dust settle. We don't think that would derail global economic growth going forward. Now, the next area that we're focused a lot on internal to a research department is the regulatory risk. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, before I dive into regulatory risk, I think it's really important to remind everyone that at Fisher Investments, we're politically agnostic. And what that means is, you know, we think about politics primarily in terms of risk, and that's risk to economies, to markets, and most importantly, to our client portfolios. And we've historically seen risk come from both sides of the aisle, so we have to check our biases and our political preferences at the door. Now, we can point to a lot of bear markets that have started because of overzealous, overreaching regulation, or sometimes regulation that made a lot of sense on the surface, but had some unintended consequences that people really didn't expect. So it's something that we're always watchful of. But the good news is when you look at a lot of these regulatory changes, the legislative reactions, they tend to happen one, two, three years after the catalyzing or crystallizing events that they seek to address. A great example of that would be Dodd-Frank. It was passed in 2010, and it was meant to address issues from years prior. It was actually passed when we were already in this bull market. And importantly about those regulation, regulatory changes is once they're passed, they don't immediately become enacted. Another great example, Dodd-Frank, was not, when you go out six or seven years after its passage, and about 25 to 30% of it wasn't even implemented because it was tied up in rulemaking committees and processes at places like the SEC or the Commodities Future Trading Commission. So because of that and the current administration's deregulatory tilt, and the gridlock we continue to see in Washington, D.C., we think if you have any regulation, it's going to be farther out than the 12 to 18 months that we're focused on. And it, if it does happen, it'll probably be pretty watered down by the time it gets enacted. So for that reason, 
We think on a global basis, looking at the macroeconomic fundamentals, looking at politically across the world, you've got healthy gridlock across major economies. And in terms of sentiment, people are feeling better, but it's a far cry from the type of euphoria we might be concerned about. So on balance, we're very optimistic and expect this bull market to continue. Well, that's all we've got for this episode. We hope you found it educational and informative and maybe have some steps to take away and and look into on your own. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Thanks for listening. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.